The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The people of the United Kingdom, I have come here and stand before you on behalf of the brave, on behalf of our warriors who are now in the trenches under enemy artillery fire, on behalf of our air gunners and every defender of the sky who protects Ukraine against enemy aircrafts and missiles, on behalf of our tank men who fight to restore our Ukrainian borders, on behalf of our conscripts who are being trained now, including here in Britain. Thank you, Britain. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, Volodymyr Zelensky addressed British parliamentarians in a surprise visit to the United Kingdom. In a passionate and eloquent speech, the Ukrainian president paid tribute to Britain's support for Ukraine, hailed the strong British character, and presented Common Speaker Lindsay Hoyle with a Ukrainian fighter pilot's helmet inscribed with the words, We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. Today, we bring you a special Ukraine The Latest recorded minutes after his speech finished, ahead of meeting King Charles in Buckingham Palace. We analyse what Zelensky said, his rhetoric and his diplomacy, but also the substance of his requests, including an appeal to Ukraine's allies for jets. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 8th of February, day 350. And with me to discuss Zelensky's visit to the UK, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, our associate editor, Camilla Tomini, and former British Army and NATO commander, Hamish de Breton-Gordon. I started by asking Francis to summarise the day. Well, thank you, David. Yes, a remarkable morning here in a bright and chilly London. In this surprise visit, Vladimir Zelensky has travelled to the UK for the first time since Russia's invasion began back in February last year. As we've been talking about now for months, of course, Zelensky is hesitant to uh, leave Ukraine in, whilst it's under attack from Russia. And so this is a very significant moment. Uh, regular listeners will, of course, remember his visit to the United States and how much attention it brought to the Ukrainian cause. And I think we can expect similar as a consequence of this. As you say, he has just concluded speaking to the Houses of Parliament. But before I cover what he was saying, I think it's just worth talking us through what his plan is for the day because it's quite significant. So later on, we're expecting him to visit Ukrainian troops being trained by British forces and to have more meetings with Prime Minister Sunak and senior defence officials. Although so sadly for Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, he will miss out as he's in Rome for a conference on fostering closer ties between Italy and Britain on security matters, joined, of course, by our very own Dom Nichols, who will no doubt be stewing to be missing out on the opportunity of joining Zelensky on one of these military visits today. There, he's also later on, and I know Camilla will want to talk about this in detail, meeting King Charles, and he makes some allusions to that in the speech, which I'll go over in a moment. I should just start, though, by saying that Prime Minister Sunak has hailed the visit as follows. He said, quote, President Zelensky's visit to the UK is a testament to his country's courage, determination and fight, and a testimony to the unbreakable friendship between our two countries. And Zelensky, similarly, before uh, starting his speech, he posted on Telegram saying 
The United Kingdom was one of the first to come to Ukraine's aid. And today I'm in London to personally thank the British people for their support and Prime Minister Rishi Sunak for his leadership. Now, as you say, David, there was thunderous applause uh, by MPs and peers when he was received in the Westminster Hall just a few minutes ago. He started his speech by saying that he was here on behalf of the brave. And I quote, I have come here and stand before you on behalf of the brave, on behalf of our war heroes who are now in the trenches under enemy artillery fire, on behalf of our air gunners and every defender of the sky who protects Ukraine against enemy aircraft and missiles, on behalf of our tank men who fight to restore our Ukrainian borders, on behalf of our conscripts who are being trained now, including here in Britain. And he went on and was talking, as he always does, about the historical comparisons that one can make and the significance of what's going on in Ukraine at the moment. He said that our nations defended freedom in World War II. Evil lost. The world needs your leadership, Britain, just as it needs Ukrainian victory. Our people went through a crisis during the war and yet they found stamina. And he went on, Ukraine will always come out on top of evil. This lies at the core of our and also your traditions. Freedom will win we know Russia will lose. And he started to wrap up by saying that this is potentially the most important victory in our lifetime, a victory of the very idea of war. He said that Putin knows what waits him and any aggressor is going to lose. And he said very pointedly that London has stood with Kyiv since day one. From the first seconds and minutes of the full-scale war, Great Britain, you extended your helping hand when the world had not yet come to understand how to react. Boris, and then he, he turned to Boris Johnson and the cameras did the same. You got others united when it seemed absolutely impossible. Thank you. And then there was an applause in the hall. He spoke about some of his memories of when he visited London in October 2020, of course, before the invasion. He recalled meeting the royal family, visiting Westminster and the Churchill war rooms, indeed sitting in Churchill's chair. Um, (laughs) One could say quite appropriate given what's happened since. And he then wrapped up, I thought, very movingly, actually. And I should say that the whole speech felt very, very poignant. And I think there were some quite emotional MPs I could see on the footage of it. He said, God bless Great Britain, God bless the King and Slava Ukraini. So a very, very historic event, David. And I think also important to emphasise as well, it's exceptionally rare for a foreign dignitary to get the honour of addressing peers and members of parliament in Westminster Hall. It's happened with Nelson Mandela, I think had happened with Barack Obama, but this is not something that is regularly wheeled out. This is an exceptional event and an exceptional day, but I know that Camilla will want to talk more about its significance. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Camilla, yes, let's come to you. What were your reactions watching this speech? I mean, it was quite something I thought to see the the power of seeing the British establishment standing together. He's meeting the King later. He's in Westminster Hall today. What was going through your mind watching that speech? Well, I was thinking that it was actually a sort of state visit, but not announced as a state visit, but it had all of the characteristics of one. So the red carpet being wheeled out from the beginning, a sort of friendliness showing the kinship between the two countries, because there wasn't a handshake between Zelensky and Rishi Sunak. There was actually a hug. Having that historic Westminster Hall filled and the last time the public will associate with that building is, of course, the lying in state of Queen Elizabeth II was hugely significant. Um, 
It's interesting as well with regard to the royal involvement in this. Zelensky in his speech referenced the fact that he had met William and Catherine um, last time round. Again, his wife had been accommodated by Catherine, the Princess of Wales, when she visited on his behalf. Um, And this kinship with the king, echoing his relationship with both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, in the sense that back in 2014, people might remember that following the invasion of Crimea, Prince Charles made some remarks, as he was then known to some Holocaust survivors likening Putin's behaviour to Hitler's and then he then described what Russia has done as inconscionable and an attack on democracy. So clearly Zelensky sees not only in our politicians but also in our establishment a great deal of support for Ukraine and their campaign and I think we're going to see that echoed again this afternoon at Buckingham Palace where no doubt more tea will be served. I quite like the President's repeated references to how we've given him tea over the time and tea and talk it seems to be that's the kind of soft diplomacy that's been going along uh, along the way with also, of course, this hard firepower that we've provided, which I'm sure Hamish is going to speak more about, but not just the fact that we've shown sort of statesmanlike kinship with Ukraine and been welcoming to the president and his wife, but also, of course, that we've led the way when it comes to weaponry and we've led Europe on that. And I think him coming to visit the UK as the first country after the US really is significant. He referred to us, and I'll quote, as a reliable partner and uh, talked to us about us being one of the world leaders in supporting Ukraine. Significantly um, quite quite interesting for him to obviously reference Boris Johnson there, who wasn't at the front of the crowd of politicians a little way back. But again, um, there's been a lot of talk about whether we've lost our international standing after Brexit, but I think on Ukraine we've reclaimed it and then some. Well, thank you very much, Camilla. Yes, Francis, can I come to you on that? Just some thoughts on the cross-party support, because when we say the establishment is behind Ukraine, I mean, we had very uh, positive remarks from the, lab- from the Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, earlier. And um, as Camilla's alluded to as well, this, this interest of the Ukrainian president in King Charles and his role as an Air Force pilot uh, as well, I thought was fascinating. So can you talk us through some of your analysis there? Well, yes, it's a very busy day in Westminster because just prior to the speech, we had Prime Minister's questions when, of course, the leader of the opposition challenges the Prime Minister, as do fellow MPs, as to the big issues of the day and also on sometimes sort of more local concerns. But understandably, given President Zelensky's upcoming speech, it was a big topic of conversation. And Keir Starmer actually said to him, said to the Prime Minister, this House is honoured to be addressing today, addressed today by President Zelensky. From the outset of the war, he has symbolised the heroism, the resolve and the bravery of his people. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that right across this House, it is vital that we all continue to stand together in full support of Ukraine? And the Prime Minister responded, can I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his comments on Ukraine? It's something that not only the whole country can be proud of, but the entire house can be proud that we came together to stand by Ukraine when the moment matters and that we will continue to stand with them united as one parliament and one united kingdom. And as you say, David, this is important because not only is it exceptionally rare that you would see this, but we've talked about how in other countries there is not this unity of purpose. If you think about Germany, there is great division about the ways forward with regard to Ukraine. France too, as well, for all of the reasons that we've talked about in recent weeks. And perhaps most significantly, America. And I know that our American listeners have got a lot of thoughts on this as well. But for right or wrong, there is anxiety in, within Ukraine and amongst the Western alliance as to the strength of the support for Ukraine amongst the Republican Party. And that is part of the reason, of course, why Boris Johnson went over there and was talking to senior Republican leaders last week in an attempt to, 
I think, win some of them round to the Ukrainian cause. And so there are question marks with regard to other countries, whether justly or not. And there is not that with Britain. There is a real sense of a unity of purpose here in a manner that perhaps echoes what we see in Poland and in some of the Baltic states. And it's no doubt one of the reasons why Zelensky was so keen to come here and to show his support here, because he thinks that what, what we offer is that kind of unity which proved absolutely essential for Keating Kiev in the fight. Um, just also on what you were saying about the royal family, I think it's just important to emphasise as well the personal support that the king has vocalised in uh, recent times as a consequence of what's happened in Ukraine. He was what he, he actually said that we see the values under attack today in Ukraine in the most unconscionable way. In the stand we take here, we are in solidarity with all those who are resisting brutal aggression. He and Camilla, the Queen Consort, also visited the Ukrainian Catholic Cathedral in London as Russian attacks on the key cities intensified. He said then that he was touched by the extraordinary bravery, generosity and fortitude of the Ukrainian community. And he has, of course, been, you know, broadly supportive at all of the major events he has been there. And I think, as you say, David, it's the it's the whole of British society being mobilised behind Ukraine here in a way that is rare and noteworthy. And, and, and as I say, quite poignant too. It's very striking seeing the coverage here today of, of the number of people who perhaps have not been following Ukraine as closely, but have suddenly today really been following it um, in a much more attentive manner and have been very, very struck by the poignancy of, of President Zelensky's remarks and the scale of the reaction. And of course, that's exactly what Zelensky was hoping for. Thank you, Francis. Um, can we just touch on this visit to the King later in the day? I mean, our podcast listeners later will be listening will be listening to this podcast and the, the visit will have happened. But Camilla, from all of your time um, watching and following the, the royal family and reporting on them, um, what, what should we expect to see? What, what will be the marks of a, of a truly royal welcome for the Ukrainian president? Well, I think it'd be more subtle than the kind of traditional state visit welcome because obviously the preparations haven't been in place and uh, for security reasons, even the top authorities haven't quite known exactly when this visit was going to happen. Expect the red carpet to be rolled out in the Buckingham Palace quadrangle as is the case when any VIP visitor arrives. Um, then I would imagine a photo call as the two uh, gentlemen, possibly the Queen Consort as well, not being confirmed yet, uh, meet over a cup of tea. Um, that will be the standard practice and then as is ever the case with royal conversations be it audiences with prime ministers or beyond we probably won't get much of the contents it's not like the political scene where we get a quotes readout of what exactly is being discussed but as francis has um, spoken about there you know, it's very clear from what he said in the past, and obviously the king needs to be careful not to stray into politics, but he's made several references to the idea of this invasion of Ukraine being an attack on democracy, attack on our values, um, and, and led the way in that spirit. So I can imagine the meeting being extremely convivial. So it sounds like Volodymyr Zelensky will get, will get his cup of tea that he, he referenced several times in his speech. Um, just one more question to Camilla and Francis. Obviously, in the last few years, British politics has felt incredibly turbulent at times. Um, since, you know, apart from the, the death of Her Majesty the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, this feels like the most united day I've seen in, in British politics in a very long time. Um, I was wondering if you'd agree with that, but also wondering if, if, if this, this atmosphere could, could continue. Clearly, this is an issue on which the establishment and our politics agrees. Uh, can, can it outlast today? Well, um, as you know, a week is a long time in politics and who knows what tomorrow might bring. I did find Prime Minister's questions sort of uh, reassuringly 
uh, agreeable today. Normally they're tearing shreds out of each other and the, the predominant questions that exchanged between the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, were about this one issue upon which it seems all parties and the country is united. So, yeah, a refreshing change from the usually adversarial nature of PMQs. But come on, there could be a crisis around the corner on a domestic level and that will wipe that all off. But for now and for tomorrow, I think we can guarantee that this and President Zelensky and the plight of the Ukrainian people will be on the front pages. I would completely echo what Camilla has just said, although I would say that I think, of course, it is important to recognise as well that there are tensions within both of the major political parties, just as there are in other countries with regard to the future trajectory of travel of this war. There are anxieties, I think, particularly in the Labour Party or a certain wing of the Labour Party. They are the fringe at the moment, very much so, but there are some concerns about uh, what providing unlimited resources to Ukraine can mean for the economy, but also what it can mean for the escalation of the war itself. So uh, I think it's important to, to, for us to recognise as well that whilst they all are saying the right things at the moment under both of the, the Prime Minister and the Leader of Opposition, if this had been a Prime Minister Jeremy Corbyn only a matter of years ago, which looked you know, plausible, uh, I think we would have expected a very, very different mood in the House of Commons if there had been a war in Ukraine. And indeed, I'm not sure that Britain would have provided necessarily the same scale of support as it has now. So just important to, to acknowledge that too, I think, that yes, things are absolutely united at the moment, but you never know who's waiting in the wings. Quick point on that, sorry, just to add, I do agree with you, Francis, although because Sir Keir Starmer is trying to appear completely opposed to the sort of Corbynista elements that invaded his party previously, there's even more impetus for him to look quite hawkish on this issue. Yes, I agree there is disagreement over whether providing, say, air support is going to escalate the situation in Ukraine. But there, Sakia Starmer doesn't win many votes, I think, following a more Jeremy-type path. Well, thank you very much, Camilla and Francis. Um, Hamish, can I come to you? Um, Obviously, quite a few things have been announced today. I've got a note from Dom Nichols, uh, who, as Francis mentioned, is on the road down in Italy with Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary. Uh, He's sent back a couple of things he he wants us to mention. I I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So this is what Dom says. He's with Ben Wallace in Italy, uh, who's talked about UK and Dutch Marines training Ukrainians, not basic training, but specific types of amphibious warfare, and pilot training, not as a precursor to sending British... British typhoons, but for generic integration with NATO systems, referred to as OP Orbital Plus. Orbital being the basic training system UK had in Ukraine from 2015. Um, That's just some context from Dom, but could you talk to us about your thoughts on what's been announced today and what it means for the direction of the war? Yes, hello, everybody. And thanks very much for having me on. I thought an absolutely outstanding speech, as you guys have mentioned, What really focused on me, particularly on the jet issue, the comment he made about we have freedom, give us the wings to protect it, looking very much at the British jets. And and, and just a little bit on that, I I gave a a lecture at Cambridge University just before Christmas with the BBC's John Simpson, who had just come back from interviewing Zelensky in Kyiv. And he said he was the most impressive leader, the most uh, articulate leader that he'd ever come across since Ronald Reagan, who, who also had that sort of pre- presence. So I think he, he, he really got a, a message across. And when we look at the actual capabilities, and um, I, I sit betwixt uh, Salisbury Plain at the moment and, and Bovington, 
And for the last seven days, all I've heard is heavy artillery fire on Salisbury Plain, which is the AS-90s, the 155 uh, artillery pieces that we're gifting the Ukrainians. And actually, also, I can hear the Challenger 2 tanks firing down on the ranges about 10 miles south of me, really sort of demonstrating the the awesome power that they have and, and key elements that we are gifting to the Ukrainians. But on the specific points, I think is um, yeah, very, very interesting on, let's look at the Marines, first of all. You know, Marines, slightly more specialist than, than the infantry. And again, behind me on Salisbury Plain, we know thousands of Ukrainian infantry have been trained. This is another positive move, I expect. And as Dom says, talking about am- amphibious warfare here, that to me is another positive sign that Ukraine is thinking about what it's going to do next. I just one little caveat here that I've been thinking about. I wrote about a little bit over the weeks about what we call operational security. There was a big concern that perhaps there was a little bit too much in the media, particularly some of the the, uh, information about armoured vehicles coming from the States. I think, you know, it's something that we perhaps need to be a bit careful of, although the Ukrainians are absolute masters of operational security and disinformation and deception. So I think what one just needs to sort of caveat that slightly. But I do, I think it's very positive that us and the and the Netherlands, I think it was, Don was saying, are going to be doing this marine training. It does make us another step forward. On the NATO jets issue, again, I think very carefully phrased words coming out of NATO NATO countries. Of course, Zelensky, you know, what he was saying in Parliament just now is he wants British jets, uh, but I don't see Typhoon or, or F-35, our most modern jets, going. To me, it sends a really key message that NATO uh, and the coalition is in for the long time because a lot of recent stuff coming out of Russia and out of Kremlin is that, you know, we can stick this out longer than everybody else. We've got the the troops and, you know, 500,000 conscripts. And it seemed that that uh, Putin's idea was in some sort of, you know, not almost medieval, but certainly First World War type idea that you just, you know, if you've got the, the soldiers, you keep throwing them in to win. And what we've seen around Bakhmut recently would sort of back that up. But if we're talking about NATO jets in whatever guise, if eventually we're looking to actually gift NATO jets to Ukraine, you know, we're talking years. So I think that is a really strong and powerful message to make. And on the integration with NATO air structures, I expect this is very much a, a training piece to be able to train these pilots to to be able to utilize some of the NATO capabilities. And we know that there are NATO air capabilities around for surveillance and intelligence that perhaps is something that we are looking without committing NATO equipment and troops directly to the battle to facilitate Ukrainian air force to be able to use them. So it it strikes me as being a a really, you know, the, the the sort of next stage and indicating to the Russians that, that nothing is off the table. Yeah, and um, you know, Zelensky very much pointing at Boris, you know, getting everything moving to begin with, and, and others, and my included, me included, saying, well, we should really give Ukraine absolutely everything it needs to prevail. And the next few months are going to be key. And just to finish off on, on this piece, the jets are a long way away. 
We know that. The tanks, which I think are going to be absolutely fundamental to staving off any advance the Russians might make, and also getting the Ukraine absolutely on the front foot. You know, we're expecting them, the first tranche to arrive end of March, I believe the British government said. So that, that, is, that is relatively soon so that they can start having an impact. You've also been reported over the last few days that actually you know, a lot more tanks have been committed, you know, almost 100 Leopard 1s, which not quite as capable as Leopard 2 and Challenger 2, but not far off it. These numbers are rising, I think, to a really significant number now. So, um, yeah, I think, I think a really important day in this war and hopefully a, an absolute watershed for a positive move um, by, by the Ukrainians. Thank you so much. I mean, it's astonishing that you can hear the training going on just sort of, you know, just a few miles away. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's, does, does it go on all day, every day during the night? I mean, how often, you know, how often are you hearing this? Absolutely. I mean, it's uh, relentless is the wrong word because to me it is absolute music to my ears. I know some of the other old generals you know around the plane sometimes moan about this but there's no moaning at the moment because we know that it's you know it's ukraine men and women of the ukraine military who are there the as-90s you know hugely powerful 155 shells yeah i mean you can it, it almost rattles the windows and i'm probably about eight miles away but in a similar fashion on a clear day clear day like this with the wind coming up from the south you can hear the challenger twos firing 15 miles away. So, um, but you can imagine what it's like if you're in amongst that. You know, I, I have been and, and uh, you know, I know Dom has been as well. It is, it is unbelievable. Um, and the fact that men and women in Ukraine are in amongst this every day is, you know, it, it's almost impossible to describe. But if I tell you that an AS-90 shell landing eight miles away rattles my window, you can sort of get a feeling what it's like when it lands, you know, a couple of hundred metres away. Absolutely. Well, before we come to Camilla and Francis for any questions or thoughts you'd like to add to that, Hamish, can I just stay with you for one more question? Um, you've been writing recently on the importance of jets and you made you linked it you linked it to how they might perform in concert with with tanks that tanks by themselves are, are not necessarily the sort of the the, the 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 magic key to unlock to unlock ukraine's next advance and i wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that put i guess what we're really talking about is one of dom's you know favorite ballywick's combined arms but why is it so why why is the air force so important as well as tanks when they're working together well you're absolutely right combined arms warfare is where you have tanks infantry artillery and air power, be it aircraft or attack helicopters working in unison. Because what you want is to create what we call freedom of manoeuvre. You want to be able to manoeuvre wherever you can to get an advantage to the enemy. And ideally, you want to get behind them. But, you know, on a battlefield like this in Ukraine, where actually Western tanks vastly overmatch Russian tanks. So we're not so worried about the opposing Russian tanks, but we're more concerned about air power. So some of these ground attack aircraft have missiles that they can stand off from great distances, you know, a couple of kilometers uh, and fire, and also attack helicopters. So they are more vulnerable from, from the sort of frontal 65 degree arc of a tank 
you know, it is very capable and would take a lot of hits. But aircraft can fire from above or get round the side. So that's where they become vulnerable. And, uh, you know, I saw a little bit in the first Gulf War, you know, and the second Gulf War. So you suppress the enemy aircraft by ideally air defence and your own uh, fighter aircraft. So what we have at the moment with the Ukraine manoeuvre forces is hugely effective air defence. And the British Stormer vehicles, which are, are track vehicles, armoured vehicles, which would move along with the tanks, sort of give them what we call local air defence. So protect them against most attack air helicopters. But the fact that the, the enemy aircraft can stand off, if you like, that creates a danger. So ideally, to take out enemy aircraft, um, you, you want your own aircraft that are capable. Now, we know that the Ukraine uh, Air Force you know, has its MiGs, um, but they're being written down. So ideally, in the first instance, we would replace those MiGs with perhaps NATO MiGs. And I know that's been looked at. But I don't, you know, it, it's, it's not a game-losing thing. The fact that the Russian Air Force has been pretty much absent um, in the war so far, which which to me seems strange. But I have said in some of the, in my, my piece in The Telegraph last week that I can't imagine if there was this great armoured thrust that would take back Crimea and the Donbass. I can't imagine that uh, the Kremlin Putin wouldn't throw in his air force and that they could have an impact. So that that is the key thing there, that... In theory, the Russian Air Force should have air superiority and should rule the battlefield, but they're not. And the Ukrainian Air Force and Ukrainian Air Defense have managed to suppress them. But in order to guarantee the best effect of our combined arms maneuver based around these, you know, hopefully 300 or so Western tanks, to have air superiority provided by Ukrainian jets would be absolutely what is required. Now, it's not, you know, it cannot, you know, this this armoured thrust to, to kick the Russians out of Ukraine would not necessarily not happen if they didn't get those, those jets, but it would make it more difficult. So you always try and get the most advantage that you can. And in combined arms warfare, air power, as we call it, is, is a key element to it. Thank you, Hamish. Well, there's some things to pick up there, I think. Uh, one of them is, of course, the implications of, of all of this for contemporary uh, debates in the UK. So, Camilla Tomani, can you talk to us a little bit about what this might mean for our own uh, defence budget? Well, I think at a time where all budgets are squeezed departmentally and we've had to plough more in the NHS to plug a COVID back hole, there's been this sense that it's not politically expedient to start talking about an increase in defence spending. That was before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now we see the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, being very open about the fact that he wants more defence spending, more coverage of the depletion of our armed forces, both on land, sea and um, in air. And this sense, perhaps, of the British public feeling as if defence should be more of a priority than it once was. You look at any of the polling and people's priorities are usually the NHS and schools. But because of what Putin has done and also other rhetoric around his sort of mad stroke, bad behaviour, this documentary on the BBC that's been playing out over the course of recent Monday nights, Boris Johnson revealing that 
Putin made direct threats on his life. It does rather bring home this notion that, you know, you want to be well defended on home soil, not least when you're being asked by the likes of Ukraine to supply weaponry to them. So I think it does slightly change the dial on the defence spending debate. And it's going to be difficult now for Rishi Sunak, I think, to resist Wallace's calls for more money, not least in light of the fact that he's trying to out Boris Boris when it comes to his own international statesmanship on this issue. Absolutely. And I would say to all listeners, uh, our own uh, Danny Sheridan has been doing lots of reporting on this and lots of interesting reports in the last few days. So do look up Danny Sheridan's reporting around this issue. Um, Francis, would you like to come in on that? Yes, well, I just wanted to echo what Camilla has said there. There are some very serious conversations to be had here about defence spending. And I know that the anxieties around the direction of travel following the integrated review have only been extrapolated by what's happening in Ukraine. As we've spoken about for many months now, there were real feelings, I think, amongst the British defence establishment that the investment needed to be in cyber and all of these very innovative forms of warfare drones, of course, which have proved vital in Ukraine. But now, actually, we're also seeing another side of this, which is the importance of just having enough tanks and ordinary, regular heavy, heavy artillery, heavy weapons that at the end of the day, would be capable of fighting a war on a broad front. And so it's leading to a lot of reassessments, I think, about what the nature of future warfare is as a consequence of what we have seen in recent months. I just wanted to reiterate something that Hamish was talking about there, which, of course, is some of these announcements that we're expecting today. And indeed, there's already been another update on this, which is that Rishi Sunak has now just said that there are plans to expand the training for soldiers, uh, Ukrainian soldiers to Marines and the fighter jet pilots, of course, as well. Well, so I imagine that we'll get some more details later on following one of these visits that's taking place. So that's something we will imagine, imagine we'll be able to cover a little bit more tomorrow. But just one thing that's, of course, related to all of this conversation is the United States. And I just wanted to touch on the fact that we did have uh, President Joe Biden's State of the Union address yesterday, and he did make a remark about Ukraine there. He said, and I quote, the United States will support Ukraine for as long as it takes to fight off the Russian invasion. We are going to stand with you. Our nation is working for more freedom, more dignity, more peace, not just in Europe, but everywhere. And then he also made some other remarks later on about the nature of some of that support. And of course, it's, it's further uh, military in nature. So there is, of course, a broad front here about the importance of continuing to provide Ukraine with the sort of weapons that we are, have been talking about now for weeks, uh, obviously most significantly tanks and some of this more advanced kind of missile technology. But there is still this open question about whether the jets will come with time. It's one thing to be training pilots. It's quite another to be sending the kind of modern jets that perhaps in the next year or so, if Ukraine are able to launch a sizable offences, will need, to Hamish's point, in order to really deliver that hammer blow against the Russian forces. So there are a lot of open questions at the moment on some very sensitive areas. And I imagine that we'll see some more fizzes open up in the coming, in the coming months. Thanks, Francis. Um, we've just got some interesting uh, details from Ben Riley Smith, our political editor, who I believe was in was in the hall and, and has been watching watching the speech there. I'll just read out a couple of quotes from him just to give listeners a sense of the atmosphere uh, in Westminster Hall this afternoon. Um, he writes: MPs, peers, parliamentary staff, and journalists were crammed into Westminster Hall just now, many huddled in winter coats with the temperature in single digits. Throughout President Zelensky's address, there were shouts of "Slava Ukraina," not least when the Ukrainian leader vowed that Russia would, in the end, be 
defeated. Uh, after the speech, Zelensky, uh, who had addressed the room before a vast stained glass window glowing up with the winter sunlight, stepped forward to shake the hands from some of the crowd. Miss Truss and Mr. Johnson were both in the front row as recent occupants of number 10. Um, Camilla Francis and Tamish, you've all watched the speech. I just wanted to ask you quickly, uh, what was the moment that would stay with you the most? Uh, Camilla or Hamish, would you like to start? I was just going to say that that killer line that I think we're going with on the blog about, you know, <laughs> give us more planes is the thrust of what he was there to say. Um, I also found his oratory compelling you know, a thick accent and English obviously not his first language, but yet he communicated so well, I thought. And of course, the references to Churchill and that visit to the war rooms, I think, will resonate with anybody watching. I, I, and the the only thing I, I'd add there, David, I, I mentioned the bit about freedom and give us wings, but his reference to, to King Charles being a pilot uh, and, and every king in the U- Ukrainian Air Force, or every pilot in the Ukrainian Air Force is a king. Um, uh, very compelling. I must say, I do, you know, almost felt a lump in my throat as I listened to that. And if I was, you know, a Ukrainian soldier on the front line, I, I absolutely see why I'd be getting out of the trench to fight the enemy. In- inspirational stuff. Francis Dillon. I would echo... I would echo all of that. I think the thing that really stood out for me, and you could really sense the the momentum in the room when he said this, was when he talked about how London had stood with Kiev since day one. And there was a real sense of a of a reflection on the historical significance of that and an acknowledgement, I think, in, con- in contrast to perhaps certain other powers, which I'll, I'll come to in a moment as a final thought. Thank you, Francis, Camilla and Hamish. I would say my just one little thing. I mean, you, you've all covered, I think, very effectively and movingly the historical um, and in- inspirational moments of the speech. I, I thought it was rather interesting. There was a moment about halfway through where he finished a point and somebody in the crowd starts applauding. And Zelensky, with sort of impeccable comedic timing, just throws an eye to the crowd and says, you know, not yet. G- give me a second. I'm going to get going to get there. And you've just got a flash of that uh, performer's ability to to work a crowd and to to, to, to get, you know, where to go, where to stop. And I, I thought that was a, a nice moment, but it just showed, it showed some of the qualities, it, some of the qualities that have undergirded his, his ability and his, um, uh, in, in, in his statesmanship in, in, in the last year. Um, is there anything more from any of you to say about the speech, about Zelensky's visit, or shall we go to our final thoughts? Hamish, you're unmuted, so if you'd like to take it away. Yes, my, my final thoughts. First of all, on the, on the defence budget we were talking about there, I think it's... Um, yeah, it, it, it's very clear that this has been a massive wake-up call. And, um, you know, we, pound for pound, our men and women in the British military are still the best, but we are pretty lightweight uh, against some of the, you know, heavy metal that we like to look at in future. And that must be looked at with some urgency. And the, and the second thing is really endurance. Um, it's great to hear from our leaders that we're in this for the long term. Because we've absolutely got to be. Only a Ukrainian victory is going to give peace to Europe and the rest of the world. And it's not necessarily going to finish quickly. We must endure, despite all the other dreadful things that are happening, well, in, in Turkey and Syria and elsewhere and financial issues here. We must endure. And like, like the rest of you, I'm absolutely delighted that uh, Zelensky sees us as the strongest and original ally and uh, we've got to push that through to the end. Thank you Hamish. Uh, Camilla Tomney. Well I just think in these very cynical times when people are very suspicious of politicians and their self-serving nature 
what we have in Zelensky is a sort of king among political leaders. He's seeing royalty later, but in the eyes of those who are in Westminster Hall, he is a king himself. And I thought that was significant against the backdrop of very troubling times that a visit by, by somebody who is literally gone to hell and back and continues to do so is quite humbling for all and perhaps puts our own problems into stark perspective. And to end today, Francis Turney. Thanks, David. Just one final thought, of course, is that President Zelensky will be going to Brussels this evening or tomorrow morning. We're not quite sure yet. And I was just struck listening to the speech that he made very few references to Brussels, to the EU, to France, to Germany. Indeed, I don't think he necessarily made any references to them at all. And I just thought that was interesting. It was all about Britain and it was all about America. And there may well be good reasons for that. He is about to go to Brussels after all. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of uh, backslapping and uh, and congratulations there and words of thanks as well. But if I'd been listening to that speech and I was Emmanuel Macron or Olaf Scholz, I would have felt perhaps a little bit embarrassed because he did seem to be emphasising that the real standard bearers of liberty were America and Britain and everyone else had sort of let the side down, or at least initially in the early days and weeks of the war. So just something that I thought was interesting given the moment of the war that we're in at the moment and thinking about the future. Absolutely. Well, it could just be a point of, you know, Zelensky knowing his audience, knowing exactly what will go down well amongst the assembled parliamentarians. Uh, just to say that a picture has just emerged. It's on our, li- uh, on our live blog of the PM Rishi Sunak and Zelensky sharing a pot of tea at Downing Street. So this is potentially the first of many cups of tea. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.